Welcome to the Sober Gay Sunday podcast, a podcast about being gay and sober and not just on Sundays. In this podcast, we'll explore the ins and outs of being queer and sober in a world where drinking and using are woven into the fabric of our culture. This season, we'll be hearing the stories of addiction and recovery from sober gays from all over the world. Every story of recovery is unique in its own way, and every story deserves to be heard. So let's go. Hello, and welcome to the Sober Gay Sunday podcast. I'm your host, Dave. As of the recording of this podcast, I have three years of continuous sobriety. In this podcast, we'll explore the ins and outs of being queer and sober in a world where drinking and using are woven into the fabric of our culture. But first, a disclaimer. I am not a doctor or a mental health professional. I'm simply an addict in recovery telling my story and giving a platform to others to do the same. These are the tools and tricks of sobriety that work for us. If you feel like you're really struggling, please reach out to your healthcare provider and seek the help of a professional. And now, on to the podcast. Today, we welcome to the podcast Mark Velvano. Mark comes to us from New York City. His sobriety date is 11 21 2005. He is an educator, Frenchy dad, and home chef. His home fellowship is CMA in New York City. Please welcome to the podcast, Mark. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the pod. How are you? Good. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. It is a pleasure. So we can just start off this interview with, if you could just tell me your full name, your preferred pronouns, and a little bit about yourself. Sure. My name is Mark Valvano. I am from just outside Manhattan. I live in Jersey City, New Jersey, but I am part of the New York City Fellowships, um, and my preferred pronouns are he, him, his. New York City. I love New York. Yeah, it's funny. Actually, I have this tattoo that reminds me that I've tried to go everywhere else, but I always come back home. I feel like I step off the train and I am just take this like deep breath of like, oh, I'm here. I'm in New York City. <laughs> Whereas other people are like, oh my God, I'm here. What's happening? Like so much, so fast paced, but I'm just like, oh, it comforts me to speed walk everywhere I go. So (laughs) why don't you take us back to the very beginning from your first drinking experience all the way to where you are now? Sure. Um, So I'm the youngest of eight in a big Irish, Italian, mostly Italian Catholic family. Um, my father and his brothers were functioning alcoholics, his, my grandfather and his brothers were functioning alcoholics. Um, my brothers, myself and my other male cousin in our demographic, not so functioning alcoholics. So I grew up with a lot of chaos in the house because my two older brothers were in the midst of their, um, alcoholism and drug addiction as I was much younger than everybody else. Um, you know, and I, I just kind of remember being like, that won't be me. I'm not going to be like that. Even in like high school, like I didn't dabble in drinking or drugs. I did a year abroad in Brazil, which is where I kind of had like my first real drink. But like kids there at 16 were drinking like adults. Yeah. And very responsibly, like 
one drink and that's it. So like I never really drank to get drunk there. It wasn't the mindset there, which is yeah. strange, right? When I went to college in the Midwest, you know, I wasn't really sure of who I was yet. Um, and like, I was trying to prove stuff. I had a lot to prove, right? I'm only like five foot three. Um, and like, that was always a big thing when I was little, like my height, my effeminate ways were always really easy targets for people. Yeah. Right. Um, and I also was kind of set up with this thinking process of not being good enough. Mm -hmm. So my dad in his, you know, trying to be helpful would say things like you're either going to turn out to be an asshole like the two boys or you're never going to live up to the five girls and i'd be like there's really no good choice there you do realize right so it was like (laughs) i have to forge this path that no one else sees for me Mm -hmm. um so i was very stubborn and in college it was like i wasn't a jock i wasn't a brainiac so my, you know, special talent was I could drink them all under the table. And very quickly, I found out that I was a blackout, pass out, throw up, piss your pants kind of drunk. Mm. And the worse it got, the less predictable the order in which those things would happen got to be, you know, and like, I really remember like fraternity brothers being like, what, what do you have a third leg where all this booze is going? Like, what is happened? Like. And it was kind of my way of hiding who I was, right? Like, I didn't want them to know what I was figuring out and discovering on my own. I think somewhere in the middle of, like, sophomore year, I realized, oh, I can't keep dropping classes and not going to courses. I'm not going to graduate on time, and I need to get out of here on time. So it was like this. That was, like, the first example of me seeing something and pulling back sort of like pulling the reins back and being like, okay, I have to control this. Mm -hmm. You know, and I did that fairly successfully. You know, I graduated on the Dean's list. You know, I got out on time. And then when I came back to New York, I still hadn't come out fully. I I would say that my my drinking career continued to be very bingy, very messy. And the funny thing in retrospect is I actually detested the taste of alcohol. (laughs) I just liked that it let me be less me or it let me be more me, I thought, right? But it shut off whatever was telling me that what I was wasn't good enough. Two DWIs, 45 minutes in the opposite direction of where I was supposed to be going. Um, Both times, not just the first time, both times I was in the complete opposite direction of where I was trying to head to, you know, and that's one of those things that I always refer back to when people are like, I don't believe in God. And I'm like, something was keeping me alive because that night I should not have gotten out of that car alive. It's amazing that there were no accidents in those two scenarios. And I got to a point where I started going out to clubs in the city and I was first introduced to ketamine. And then the first time somebody gave me an ecstasy, they gave me half a pill and they were like, I'm going to give you half. This is what it's going to feel like. If you like it, you can come and get the other half. Well, like I could not wait to like climb them like a tree and was like, give me the other half. This is amazing. 
Um, and it was like, I could do this for the weekend and like be okay on Monday. The come down wasn't as bad as booze. I didn't have a hangover. I didn't get those like suicide Tuesdays until I started to go, well, now I can take a second pill and go to a second club and stay out longer. The nail in my coffin was when I was introduced to crystal meth. It was the first thing I ever did that I went, oh, what is this? Mm-hmm. The scary thing is like the person I was doing it with was literally pasted to his front door going, shh, shh I hear somebody. There's somebody's out there. And like, we never had sex. I was just sat in his room, like, you know, snorting up whatever I could and being like, this is greatest. Right. Like never like saw that warning sign of like, well, you're bugged out and like think that somebody's in the hallway coming to get us. Right. Right. Totally like passed over that and was like, and I'm loving it. (laughs) Correct. I had an appendicitis and I literally thought it was because I did crystal meth. Because I had like a week of like experimenting and then like my appendix kind of flared up. And like, I'm literally in St. Vincent's, God rest its soul, St. Vincent's Hospital in the city, which is no longer telling like all the nurses, like I did crystal meth this weekend and I, I really shouldn't have. And I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Long story short, it had nothing to do with it, but you know, I got it out of my system. And then I moved to San Francisco on a whim because I met a man with an enormous penis on the internet. Mm. Um, I got a job, a great job with a company that I had worked for and loved and they loved me. They were so excited to have me come and work at their corporate offices. Everything was great. And then like a month into being there, I was reintroduced to crystal meth, started again just on weekends. But eventually, like I was lying to work and telling them like just terrible things like, oh, I just switched HIV meds and it's hard for me to get up in the morning. And I loved that job. But I was up all night. I made sure those allocations to the stores were done on time. (laughs) Don't you worry. There wasn't a pottery barn in the country that was short on material. (laughs) After about a year, they were like, this is ridiculous. Like I went missing for two days. They were looking all over town for me. They thought I was dead. But it was the first example of losing something I really loved. I left San Francisco after two years, pretty broken, pretty destitute, and definitely sick. I knew I was sick, but I didn't know how sick I was until I like passed out coming out of the subway station and had pneumonia. You know, and that cleaned me up for a year. And then, you know, my parents used, I was staying with my parents. They would go away for the winter. So like that first winter, it was like I had a computer, a car, an empty house and a severance check. And then I binged on and off for like two more years. Mm -hmm. So I came into the rooms in 2005, destitute, because the last weekend that I was out, I blew off work at a restaurant and they had like 400 reservations that night. And my sister had just been at the restaurant a couple days prior. So her phone number was still in the reservation book. And the guy called her and was like, your brother didn't show up. So I shut my phone off. I decided I was going to go until I ran out of drugs, money and gas. And I got back home and I turned my phone on and I was like, well, I guess I should listen to these voice mess- voicemail messages. I listened to this voicemail from my mother. Had it been my dad, the old Italian Marine, it would have been like, whatever. But it was her. And this is the same woman that never gave up on me, that always had my back. And she basically said, you dirty motherfucker, 
Get out of my house. I am done with you. And that was pretty much it. My brother showed up. And luckily at the time, he had eight years of sobriety. And he like sat in the Barca lounge, kicked off his shoes and put his feet up and was like, all right, buddy, we got to come up with a plan. And it needs to include rehab or I'm supposed to kick you out. So I went to rehab. I was paired up with a, an amazing woman who had 22 years of sobriety as my counselor. And she didn't put up with any of my conniving. I was very smart. I was always trying to manipulate my way around. And she said to me, she's mm-hmm. like, you'll think your way right out of this program. Thank God I've, I've stayed. It'll be 18 years in November. Thank you so much to Mark for his incredible story. Make sure you guys tune in next week for part two. Thank you for tuning in to the Sober Gay Sunday podcast. Please feel free to like, subscribe, share, and comment. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Sober Gay Sunday. You can also email me directly at SoberGaySunday at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, stay sober, guys. I'm so sick of small talking, tell me something, you're dropping in me on my head with your biggest mistakes. I don't want your daily drama, fill me in on family traumas, tell me all the medication that you take. Cause life's so short, we're playing so fast.